Ladies and gentlemen, recording from Los Angeles, California. Welcome to another edition of the one and only podcast known to the world as Sean's Sports Stop, where Sean Tiplitsky gives his unique opinion on the the biggest biggest news news stories in sports. sports. That's right. As you just heard, legendary UFC ring announcer Bruce Buffer lets you know, this is the one, the only Sean Sports Stop podcast, the greatest podcast in the world. Thank you guys so much for listening, wherever you may be, however you may be listening. I know it's been a while, but I'm back, and I know I say that every time, but I am committing this time. This time I am going to make the commitment, and I'm going to do my absolute best to do a podcast episode at least every other day. I know it's a daily show. I have not even been close to living up to those lofty, uh, ambitious expectations. But I'm going to stop uh, bullshitting here. We have probably more to talk about today than any other day I've ever talked about sports on this show. I mean, there. I mean, everything from Max Scherzer and Corey Seager signing with new teams to Lincoln Riley leaving Oklahoma to NBA basketball, NFL. I mean, there's everything in the kitchen sink to <coughs> to talk about so let's just get right into it starting with Joel Embiid and his struggles with COVID-19. Philadelphia 76ers center Joel Embiid returned from a nine-game absence after testing positive for COVID-19 by posting 42 points and 14 rebounds in 45 minutes during a 121 to 120 double overtime loss to the Minnesota Timberwolves. After the game Embiid spoke about his experience saying quote that John hit me hard. I thought I wasn't going to make it. That's that's kind of crazy. I mean, if you know me, you know that I don't take COVID-19 as seriously as pretty much most people. That's just, that's been my personal view from the get-go. I've had COVID myself, um, and I base my conclusions, assumptions, and statements off of that, uh, in addition to the things I see, hear, and read. But when you have Joel Embiid, someone that's in his, one of the, one of the best athletes in the world. I mean, if you're a big man, if you're over seven feet tall and you're successful in the NBA, you are unbelievably athletic and capable. So when he says that he didn't think he was going to make it, that's really telling. He said it was that bad. He said it was worse than he ever imagined. He said it was a miracle that he played as many minutes as he did on Saturday. That's, that's pretty crazy. I mean, I'm really surprised unless someone is paying him to dramatize how bad his experience has been with COVID, which I highly doubt is the case. But, you know, stranger things and worse things have happened. I mean, he barely missed, he barely rested after halftime, playing the entire third quarter and both overtime periods. He hit the bench for the first three minutes and 40 seconds of the fourth quarter, but that was it. He battled on the court with Wolf center Carl Anthony Towns, who also, unfortunately, has a lot of negative experiences with COVID. He lost eight family members to COVID-19, including his mother, Jacqueline Cruz Towns. That is so sad. I mean, nothing you could say about that. But Embiid has made it known that COVID was much worse for him than he ever anticipated. And here is a story on a bit of a lighter note or much heavier. It really depends on how you look at it. I choose to consume everything and is canter related with a grain of salt and a sense of satire and sarcasm. And that's how I'm going to talk about it here. Boston Celtics center Ennis Cantor is reportedly changing his name to Ennis Cantor Freedom. Yes, this is Meta World Peace 2.0, you could say. 
Shams Sharania of The Athletic reported Cantor will become his middle name, while Freedom will become him, his surname. Now, I, the first thing that comes to my mind is if your name is Ennis Cantor and you really want the word freedom to be in your name, and I, I totally understand why he does. He's from Turkey, where things are a lot rougher than they are in the United States. The Turkish president wants to kill him, and Cantor will very soon become a United States citizen. So I totally understand why he loves the USA, why he wants freedom in his name. But I just don't understand, if your name already is Ennis Cantor, why not make it Ennis Freedom Cantor? I mean, to me, that rolls off the tongue a lot better than Ennis Cantor Freedom. But hey, that's his name, obviously, his decision. Cantor has become an increasingly vocal civil rights activist and recently criticized Nike for what he believes is the company's inaction regarding the treatment of minorities in China. In the past, let me preface his statement by saying this. In the past, uh, on this show, when it comes to to- when it came to topics like this, I have largely shied away from giving my opinion on anything that's remotely controversial. That's going to change. I mean, this is a Sean Sports Talk podcast where I give my opinion. It's my show. If you don't like it and don't listen to it, and if you like it, great, keep listening. And even if you don't like it and you want to listen to it, that's fantastic too. The point is, I'm going to say what I believe in. It's unfiltered. It's my opinion that it is what it is. I'm now 18 years old. I'm a grown-ass man, so I say and do whatever the fuck I want. It's my show. And I don't mean to come off as arrogant or cocky or like an asshole, even though I probably just did. But um, let's go with what Ennis Cantor said. He said, there are so many forced labor factories in China. For instance, Uyghur forced labor. I'm not sure, I probably pronounced that incorrectly, but I did my best. Uyghur forced labor, it is modern day slavery and it is happening right now in China, Cantor said in a CNN interview. Millions of Uyghurs are currently detained, sold and assigned to work at forced labor camps, prisons and factories across the country. They are under constant surveillance with long working hours and poor living conditions. Hey, he's right. I mean, he's not making that stuff up. Don't forget every time you put those shoes on your feet or you put that t-shirt on your back, there are so many tears and so much oppression and so much blood behind it all. That's deep. I mean, that's a really deep statement there. And I think the point there, there are obviously two things that he's wanting to accomplish here. Number one, it's obviously to bring awareness to this horrible situation that's going on in China. And a close second is he's pointing out the hypocrisy consistently shown by many athletes in the NBA and Nike, where they have these messages. And I'm not saying these are bad messages, but Cantor and I'm I'm not going to lie. I share the same opinion. The opinion is, if you come out with t-shirts that say Black Lives Matter, but those t-shirts are made by slaves in China, it's like you're, you're, pushing, you're pushing one narrative, one specific narrative extremely hard when you say that there should be, shouldn't be any oppression and everyone should be equal and there shouldn't be any discrimination, but you're completely ignoring that a lot of your products are made by literal slaves. So Cantor wants to obviously bring awareness to that horrible situation in China and also point out the hypocrisy of LeBron James, Nike, and the like. So Cantor, I mean, yeah, he's been critical of LeBron James, who's endorsed by Nike, probably their biggest um, endorsed athlete, and Brooklyn Nets owner Joe Tsai, who reportedly has close ties to the Chinese Communist Party. Cantor has referred to Chinese President Xi Jinping as a, quote, dictator, and he absolutely is a dictator. Cantor is not wrong in that sentiment at all. 
James said, Kent, LeBron James, that is, said Cantor is attempting to, quote, use his name to create an opportunity for himself. And now I'm a Laker fan. I love LeBron James. I was at the Laker game last night. But I just, I don't understand that statement. How is Cantor using your name to create an opportunity for himself? That's obviously not what he's doing. Now, I just can't tell if LeBron truly believes in that statement or he's just saying that uh, as a mouthpiece and or puppet for Nike. It's, it's kind of disgusting, if I'm honest. Quote, he's always had a word or two to say in my direction. And as a man, if you got an issue with somebody, you really come up to, them, to him. He had his opportunity tonight. I seen him in the hallway and he walked right by me. James told reporters after last week's game against the Boston Celtics. And I mean, I agree with that. With that, I agree. If Cantor has a, has a specific issue with LeBron James and he's talking shit to the media consistently, which he is, but then he ignores you in person and doesn't really say anything, that's, that makes, first of all, that shows you, you look like a pussy doing that. I'm not calling Cantor a pussy, but that's what he looks like if, that's, if what LeBron is saying is true. And then it also kind of invalidates everything you say immediately <laughs> um, if you're not able to stand up for what you believe in in person. But I'm not saying I'm with Cantor on this one over LeBron James and Nike. And with that, let's talk about some actual sports. New York, New York Giants general manager Dave Gettleman is reportedly unlikely to return for the 2022 season. As someone that supports the Giants, they're my second team after the LA Rams. I could not be more ecstatic about this. Dave Gettleman is a absolutely horrible GM. I believe I would be a better GM than he is. Um, it's possible that Gettleman, who is 70 years old, chooses to retire rather than being formally fired. Regardless, he's gone. I mean, it's highly unlikely, highly unlikely at this point that he returns for a fifth season running the Giants front office. The Gettleman era in New York has been nothing short of disappointment and arguably an outright failure. I would say it's been more than an outright failure. The franchise has failed to replenish its roster with elite talent despite having three top 10 picks and trading out of the number 11 pick in 2021. Saquon Barkley's promising career has been derailed by injuries. Daniel Jones has never looked the part of a full-fledged franchise quarterback. I mean, he has shown flashes of brilliance, but Daniel Jones is not a full-fledged franchise quarterback. And the nascent careers of Andrew Thomas and Kadarius Toney have also been riddled with injuries. The Giants are currently at 3-7. and seven. Uh, they're almost certainly headed toward their fourth straight losing season under Gettleman. Changes already began uh, this week when they fired offensive coordinator Jason Garrett. Head coach Joe Judge considered a questionable choice when Gettleman hired him. Could also be on the hot seat this offseason. The Giants hired Judge after firing Pat Shermer following an unsuccessful two-year tenure. And obviously Judge has not been remotely more successful than Shermer. Gettleman has been part of the Giants organization for 19 of the last 24 years. He worked 15 years as the teams in the team's front office before joining the Carolina Panthers as their GM from 2013 through 2017. But since taking over as GM of the Giants, it's been absolutely awful. Um, so there's not much else to say. Dave Gettleman is terrible. I hope the Giants move on. I hope he doesn't come back. And yeah, this is uh, great news. Transitioning to more football. I mean, this, I anticipate this podcast episode might be close to an hour long, 40 minutes at least. I, I'm guessing it's going to be a long one, but I'm here for it. I hope you guys are too. Cam Newton will remain the Carolina Panthers starting quarterback after being benched during Sunday's 33-10 loss to the Miami Dolphins in a game that where he posted probably the worst quarterback performance that I've seen in my lifetime live. Uh, quote, I'm not making any changes right now, Panthers head coach Matt Rules said after the game. At the end of the day, we weren't protecting the quarterback. And that is true, but Cam was also out, downright awful. 
The 32-year-old Newton was replaced by P.J. Walker. I mean, that's... If you're being replaced by P.J. Walker, something has gone terribly wrong. After completing just 5 of 21 passes for 92 yards and 2 interceptions with a pass, passer rating of 5.8. He went 5 of 21 with 92 yards, 2 interceptions, obviously no touchdowns, and a passing passer rating of 5.8. That is probably the worst quarterback performance that I have ever seen. Newton also rushed for a touchdown, so at least he, he did that. It was just his second start of the season since rejoining the Panthers on a one-year deal earlier this month. Um, I mean, he was obviously a lot better in his first start for the team. This was absolutely awful. But the Panthers are not a playoff team. It's obvious. They, I believe they started off 3-0, but it's clear that they are nowhere near a playoff team. Speaking of playoff teams, two potential contenders battled in a great game on Sunday. The Tampa, Tampa Bay Buccaneers are back on track with a 38-31 big road victory over the Indianapolis Colts at Lucas Oil Stadium. Leonard Fournette was absolutely dominant throughout the game and put the finishing touches on the comeback win with a 28-yard touchdown run with 20 seconds left in the game. He had four total touchdowns. What a game for Leonard Fournette. The, the Buccaneers improved to 8-3 and three on the season with a second straight win as they continue to bounce back from a brief two-game losing streak. Carson Wentz, I mean, I was very impressed and happy watching Carson Wentz. He threw three touchdowns in defeat for the Colts, who saw their three-game winning streak come to an end as they fall to 6-6 six and six on the season. Brady was 25-34 of 34 with 226 yards, a touchdown, and an interception. So a good game, objectively, but not a good game for Tom Brady's standards. Leonard Fournette, I mean, what a guy. 17 carries for 100 yards and three rushing touchdowns, and then seven catches for 31 yards and a receiving touchdown as well. Gronk was great with 123 yards over seven catches. Carson Wentz, I mean, it, it wasn't great. It wasn't, it was a little ugly, but for Carson Wentz and how bad he's been in the, in the years since uh, getting injured, uh, when he tore his ACL with the Eagles in, I believe it was 2017, he, this was solid. I mean, 27 to 44, 306 yards, three touchdowns, two interceptions. Again, it's ugly. It's not great. It's a lot of numbers, but it's better than what he's been showing in recent years. Transitioning to baseball, this, I've seen a lot of baseball hot stoves in my young lifetime, in my short lifespan on this spinning rock that we call home, but this hot stove, this this offseason with the um, current collective bargaining agreement between the MLB and MLB Players Association ending on December 1st, this offseason before December 1st has been unbelievable. This is probably the tamest uh, contract signing I'm going to talk about on on the episode today. The Minnesota Twins agreed to a seven-year, $100 million contract extension with veteran center fielder Byron Buxton, who I believe, if not the fastest, is one of the fastest players in baseball. As Ken Rosenthal tweeted, it was a $1 million signing bonus. He's going to make $9 million in 2022 and $15 million per season from 2023 through 2028. Um and he has a bunch of MVP bonuses and bonuses for plate appearances and things like that. Obviously, incentives to stay healthy and play well. That's not a surprise. So, yeah, I mean, the deal comes as the 27-year-old was set to enter his final year of arbitration. Uh, on July 25th, it was reported the two sides have not reached an agreement on a long-term extension, thus the rising potential of a trade. But it is clear the Minnesota Twins have made it clear that they want to keep Byron Buxton. And, yeah, I mean, when he's healthy, the former number two overall pick, is one of the most dynamic players in baseball. Over 140 games in 2017, he had 16 home runs and had a 314 on base percentage while stealing 29 bags and winning a Golden Glove uh, for center fielders. So he's one of the best, not one of the best, but one of the most dynamic players in baseball when healthy. He just needs to stay healthy. 
Speaking of health, I mean, I, I got to check on some uh, on the fans in Oklahoma because the, the announcement, this announcement, is just awful for the University of Oklahoma and their fans and the state of Oklahoma. Lincoln Riley is headed to USC after um, since being the head coach of the Oklahoma Sooners since the start of the 2017 season. This is huge for USC football. Lincoln Riley to USC is unbelievable. And as I'm going to cover later, a lot of players or some top players, some top prospects have already decommitted from Oklahoma since since the announced departure of Lincoln Riley. I mean, this this is huge. The position for USC became open after athletic director Mike Bond announced that USC fired Clay Helton on September 13th. His departure came after the Trojans lost 42-28 to in their Pac-12 opener to Stanford and don't look like the conference championship contenders fans were hoping to see in 2021. Uh, so yeah, I mean, USC made Helton the interim head coach in 2015 following the firing of Steve Sarkeesian, and he led the team to a 5-4 and record that season. The Trojans made him the full-time head coach during that time, and it appeared to be the correct move when they finished the 2016 season with nine straight wins. Victories over Notre Dame, Oregon, Washington, and UCLA were included in that stretch, as was a Rose Bowl victory over Penn State. So things were looking great for USC and Helton. However, that was the program's last bowl win. They went 5-7 and seven in 2018, 8-5 and five in 2019, and lost to Oregon in the Pac-12, Pac-12 title game during the shortened... Um, they lost in the shortened 2020 season to Oregon. Helton overall went 45-24 and 24 since 2015 and was unable to return to USC, return USC to the consistent excellence that they once enjoyed. But... I mean, as someone who originally was an interim head coach, I think he's done a great job, all things considered, but that's just my opinion. But Lincoln Riley to USC is absolutely huge. I mean, watch out for USC to become a perennial college football playoff championship contender, national championship contender every single season with Lincoln Riley there. That is, and and the players he's going to attract, I mean, guys that are decommitting from Oklahoma might just jump ship to USC. I mean, that's that's going to be crazy. Speaking of crazy, this contract was something else. The Texas Rangers have over $500 million committed uh, in free agency so far. And we're, I mean, veteran infielder Marcus Simeon has agreed to a 70-year, $175 million contract with the Texas Rangers on Sunday, according to Jeff Passan of ESPN. Simeon's decision to sign with a new team does not come as a surprise. He's one of the best shortstops on the open market alongside Carlos Correa, Trevor Story, Corey Seager, and Javier Baez. The 31-year-old was also gearing up to sign a big deal in free agency, hiring the Scott Boris Corporation to represent him per MLB Network. Boris has been viewed as one of the best agents in baseball for a while, having negotiated mega deals for New York Yankees aces Garrett Cole, nine years, $324 million, and Los Angeles Angels third baseman Anthony Rendon, seven years, $245 million. Simeon had one of the best seasons of his nine-year career with the Blue Jays in 2021, hitting 265, 334, 538 with 45 home runs and 102 RBIs. He also earned his first all-star selection last season. So he, he was looking for a huge contract even before the 2021 season, um, but he struggled to come to terms. He instead, he bet on himself and signed a one-year deal worth $18 million with the Blue Jays to play second base. And boy, did that bet on himself pay off handsomely. What a ballsy move it was by Marcus Simeon to bet on himself in this way, and it sure paid off. It's a perfect fit, really, because he was looking for a contract like this, and the Texas Rangers are looking for players like this. Other teams would not throw this kind of money at Marcus Simeon. Um, yeah, with that, we got some more football to talk about. This one hurt. This one hurt as a Rams fan, but 
It is what it is. The Green Bay Packers bounced back from a disappointing 34-31 loss to the Minnesota Vikings last weekend with a 36-28 home win over the Los Angeles Rams on Sunday at Lambeau Field. It was an impressive win for the Packers, especially considering that reigning MVP Aaron Rodgers has been dealing with what has been described as a painful toe injury that he will not ultimately require, or require, I don't know, he ultimately will not have surgery on in the short, in the near future. The green and gold improved to 9-3 on the season with Sunday's win to take a commanding lead in the NFC North. Rodgers went 28-45 with 307 yards, two touchdowns, and two carries for zero, zero yards. <laughs> Interesting sideline there, but he did have a rushing touchdown. Matthew Stafford was clearly not himself, but just considering the circumstances, he's, it's, it's a known fact that, he's, that he has multiple injuries, you know, back, hamstring, he has multiple injuries. He didn't look great. The numbers are decent. He went 21 of 38 for 302 yards, three touchdowns, one interception. Uh, could have easily thrown for three interceptions, a couple drop passes by the Packers defense from Stafford. But all things considered, I mean, it, it really feels like the Rams season, I'm not going to say ended. It's a, ended is a strong word considering they're still 7-4. and four. They got Jacksonville at home next week. I'm not going to say ended, but when Robert Woods tore his ACL – on the day or it was announced on the day that uh, they signed Odell Beckham Jr. It, since then things have been rough. Devontae Adams eight receptions 104 yards for the Packers. Cooper Cup seven receptions 96 yards for the Rams. Odell Beckham Jr. had five receptions for 81 yards and a touchdown. That was his first touchdown since week four of last season. It was a 55-yard touchdown pass from Matthew Stafford. The Toronto Blue Jays lost Marcus Simeon and Robbie Ray which I'll get to later. But boy, did they replenish their starting rotation with a big signing. Former San Francisco Giants starting pitcher Kevin Gosman has agreed to a five-year deal with the Blue Jays worth $110 million. Huge contract for him. Well-deserved. I'm very happy to see that he leaves the Giants, leaves the National League, and goes to the Blue Jays. The Blue Jays are a team that I can get behind rooting for. Uh, of note, Andy Martino of SNY reported that the New York Mets offered Gosman a larger contract than the Blue Jays, though it's not clear how much more money was put on the table. Now, that's interesting, and I'm going to reference this later. A nine-year veteran, Gosman was named to the All-Star Game for the first time in his career, like Marcus Simeon. Last season, he established himself as the ace of the San Francisco Giants pitching staff in his second year with the Giants, a Giants team that won 106 games, a franchise record. Gosman had a career year in 2021, going 14-6 with a 2.81 ERA, 1.04 whip, and 227 strikeouts in 192 innings. All career best numbers. He started twice in the National League Division Series against the Los Angeles Dodgers, but the Giants lost both of the games that he started. His 4.8 war, wins above replacement per fan graphs, was a huge improvement over his 1.6 war in 2020 and by far the best number of his career. Signing Gosman gives the Blue Jays another bona fide top of the rotation starter. Jose Barrios is already locked in for seven years. He signed for $131 million with the Blue Jays. So that's huge for uh, Kevin Gosman and the Blue Jays. Tough break for the Giants, but something tells me they're going to be all right. Switching gears to football. This is one of the sloppiest games I've seen in a while. The Baltimore Ravens maintain their lead atop the AFC North with a 16-10 victory over the Cleveland Browns at the M&T Bank Stadium in Baltimore. Justin Tucker connected with on a 49-yard field goal, his third of the night with 110 left in the game to give the Ravens some breathing room. The Browns turned it over on downs on their next drive to seal the outcome. It was a sloppy night overall for both teams who combined to turn the ball over six times. Lamar Jackson in particular had a game that he would like to forget. 
At 8-3, the Ravens stay one game ahead of the Cincinnati Bengals for first in the division. The Browns, meanwhile, fall back to 500. They've now alternated wins and losses for the past seven weeks, illustrating their consistent inconsistency. Lamar Jackson went 20 of 32, not bad. 165 yards, not bad. One touchdown, not bad. With four interceptions, Lamar Jackson threw four interceptions, and yet somehow the Ravens still won by six. That's ridiculous. He also obviously had 68 yards rushing with 17 carries. I mean, the Browns, I guess, this, I guess this is one of those games where who wanted, like, who, who wanted to lose more? Like, who felt like both teams were throwing it away but um yeah now i'm going to look at the playoff picture in the nfl through 12 weeks uh at the end of the show i'm going to give my predictions i'm going to do at the spread this week or this time i'm just going to go at the spread later on but first let's look at the playoff picture in the afc you got the ravens as the number one seed that's if someone would have asked me right now i would have not not have guessed it was them i would have guessed uh bills but wow the afc is loaded holy the sixth seed in the afc is seven and four that is unbelievable you got the ravens at eight and three followed by the patriots and titans two and three at eight and four then the chiefs Bengals, and bills are all seven and four the chargers are six and five and on the outside looking in, you have the Raiders, Raiders, Broncos, and Colts. No, Raiders and Broncos at six and five, Colts at six and six, Steelers at five, five and one, Browns at six and six, and Dolphins at five and seven. The Browns are six and six, and there's a 12 seed. The AFC is loaded, absolutely loaded. And now let's look at the NFC. One seed, you got the Arizona Cardinals at nine and two, Packers at nine and three, Bucks at eight and three, Cowboys and Rams at seven and four. The Rams were seven and one. But they've lost three straight. Titans at home, Niners on the road, Packers on the road. Three really tough games, but they're rewarded with Jacksonville at home. Next week, and then the Viking, the 49ers are at 6-5, and five, who look dead in the water, but they've been on a winning streak. And then the Vikings at 5-6. and six. On the outside looking in, you got the Falcons and Saints at 5-6. and six. The Eagles and Panthers at 5-7. and seven. Washington at 4-6. and six. And then the Giants and Bears at 4-7. and seven. They all got a chance. I mean, New England versus Buffalo is uh, not going to be crazy. There's now probably, despite looking terrible to start the season, there might be a path to a first-round bye for the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, I'd watch out for the Miami Dolphins in the AFC wildcard race. They, I would not write them off just yet. The scrap for the NFC seed looks like a 3-4 way fight. A losing team could potentially make the playoffs in the NFC. It could be the Vikings. It could be the Niners. We'll see. And yeah, that's the... Um, NFL playoff picture after week uh, after week 12 of the season. Now let's switch gears to some college sports. This is huge. This is historic. I'm extremely proud of this girl. I don't know who she is, obviously, but I am. I don't know why I said obviously, but this is amazing. Uh, Paige, I'm going to do my best. Paige Bukers, I hope I pronounced that right, is the face of women's college basketball this season. <laughs> I just uh, kind of exposed myself there because I said I don't know who she is and she's apparently the face of women's college basketball. I'm not going to lie to you guys. I don't watch women's college basketball, but she is now one of the new faces of Gatorade. Gatorade announced it agreed to an endorsement deal with the Yukon Guard, making her the first the, the company's first signed college player. That's awesome. The announcement noted it was a multi-year deal that will help the two sides, quote, drive the impact on the women's game. Bukers was previously named the Gatorade Player of the Year in high school. 
Quote, it was a blessing to win Gatorade Player of the Year in high school, and now it's truly surreal to be an official member of the Gatorade family. I know this is just the beginning of our partnership and can't wait to get to work with Gatorade to drive impact in the community and on the women's game. It's awesome. She joins a list of Gatorade-sponsored athletes that include Serena Williams, Sydney McLaughlin, Elena Del- Del Don, Zion Williamson, Jason Tatum, and Trevor Lawrence. That's amazing. The sophomore is averaging 20.5 points, 6.5 assists, 5 rebounds, 1.5 steals, and almost 1.5 blocks per game. Behind 56% shooting from the field this season. That is very, very impressive. So congrats to her. Transitioning to the NBA, uh, a huge blow for the Denver Nuggets. The Denver Nuggets will reportedly be without Michael Porter Jr. for the rest of the season. The Athletic reported that the forward will undergo back surgery that will sideline him for the remainder of the 2021-22 season. It's noted that both sides are taking a, quote, big picture approach since Porter's five-year contract extension starts next season. There's no reason for him to not do the surgery, no reason for him to play through the pain and just aggravate it, get the surgery now. The long-term, long, long, uh, big picture approach is the way to go. Porter's agent, Mark Bartlestein, uh, told Woj of ESPN the lower back surgery will take place Wednesday and the expectation is that he will make a full recovery. Back back concerns, though, are nothing new for the 23-year-old, which is not a good thing in the slightest. He played only three games during his only college season at Missouri after after injuring his back in which the season opener, um, in the season opener and under, undergoing surgery, which didn't allow the highly regarded recruit to fulfill expectations at that level. It did not, I mean, if he played in college, he would have been the number one overall pick, but he slid a little bit. That, that did not stop the Denver Nuggets from taking him with the 14th overall pick in the 2018 draft, but he missed his rookie season because of a second back surgery before the campaign. He appeared in 55 games in 2019-20 and 61 games in 2020-21, but will play only nine games this season, assuming that he doesn't make some kind of unrespected, unexpected return. Quote, he's 23 years old. Teammate Austin Rivers told reporters November 15th, he's got to take care of himself and get himself right physically. And that and that way, mentally, he can come to the court playing the way we know he can play. He's playing hurt this whole season. It's hard to do that. Hopefully, he comes back soon because he's a huge part of our team. This is yet another setback for a Nuggets team that has dealt with plenty of injuries this season. Jamal Murray is yet to take the court as he, reco- as he recovers from a torn ACL. P.J. Dozier suffered a torn ACL during a loss to the Portland Trailblazers on Tuesday. And reigning MVP Nikola Jokic has not played until tonight since November 18th due to a wrist injury. The result has been an inconsistent season for the Nuggets, who are 9-10, and 10, placing them 10th in the Western Conference. But, but Michael Porter Jr. will be back. I know he will. I know he will. <laughs> we got football to talk about. With Lincoln Riley leaving Oklahoma, believe it or not, Oklahoma needs a new head coach. Arizona Cardinals head coach Cliff Kingsbury was not interested in discussing any possibility that he could be the next head coach of the Oklahoma Sooners. Quote, I don't get into those things, he told reporters Monday, while also saying his, quote, sole focus is on the upcoming game against the Chicago Bears. The comments come after Adam Schefter of ESPN, who is a very accurate NFL reporter if you don't know. Reported Kingsbury could be a potential candidate for the Sooners, especially since he has just one year left on his current contract following the 2021 season. Now, that is something I don't, I did not know. When I saw the headline where it was like Cliff Kingsbury interested in becoming the next head coach of OU, followed by Cliff Kingsbury denies, refuses to deny that he won't become the next head coach of OU. I was like, why is this even a thing? I thought he was locked in long term with the Cardinals, but obviously, evidently, he's not. Um, while USC... 
Uh, so going back to Lincoln Riley, while USC is a major job and brings the recruiting advantages for them in California, it was still somewhat surprising, at least for me, to see Riley leave the Sooners. After all, he helped maintain their position as one of the best programs in the country by going 55-10 and 10 overall during his tenure and reaching the college football playoff three times. Meanwhile, USC is 4-7 and seven this season. Kings, Cliff Kingsbury, going back to him, is definitely familiar with the Big 12 and Oklahoma's recruiting territory from his days as a player and the head coach at Texas Tech. He was the coach of the Red Raiders from 2013 through 2018 and went 35-40 and 40 while struggling to keep pace with some of the conference's best programs. That familiarity with the Big 12 would also only go so far um, if he was the next Sooners head coach since they are primed to join the SEC in the near future. But um, yeah, Cliff Kingsbury, if I had to guess, I mean, it just depends. I mean, if they would give, offer him a huge contract like Lincoln Riley was offered in... Uh, Yeah, I mean, if you sorry, some technical difficulties. If, if he was offered a huge contract, then I could see him leaving the Cardinals. But he's in a great spot with the Cardinals. I'm not exactly sure why he would leave. Now, arguably the biggest potential signing of the baseball offseason is done. Max Scherzer is on the move after reportedly agreeing to a free agent deal with the New York Mets. This one hurts. As a Dodger fan, this one hurts. We traded for Max. I was... I remember how ecstatic I was that we got Max Scherzer and Trey Turner from the Washington Nationals. And we basically, we only had him for half a year. He was sensational. He was amazing. No ill will. I'm not salty. Best of luck to Max uh, in the Big Apple. The Mets are really looking like a, a scary team. I mean, they're still the Mets. Uh, you know, Mets going to Met, as they say. But adding, uh, adding Max Scherzer to a rotation that already features Jacob DeGrom, that's Jacob DeGrom, Max Scherzer is absolutely scary. I would assume DeGrom would be one and Scherzer would, would, would be the number two starter. But the deal is $130 million over three years. And there's an opt-out. He has an opt-out after the second season. The average of $43.3 million per season would set a new MLB record, surpassing Garrett Cole's mark of $36 million per year. Significantly surpassing by $7.3 million a year. That is huge. I mean... <laughs> It's tough. You're a team, if you're a team like the Mets, you do this. You overpay. Um, some people would say that it's not even an overpay for the Mets. Yeah, like, but that's basically saying that if you're a team like the Mets, you do it. A team like the Dodgers, you don't. I mean, looking at the Dodgers, yeah, you're unsure. Will Trevor Bauer play for us? Will he play in the MLB? Will he go to jail? What's going to happen with him? It's extremely uncertain. Clayton Kershaw is a free agent. Will he leave? The Texas Rangers uh, are like the New York Mets' little brother when it comes to building a super team. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. But then you won the World Series in 2020. The Dodgers almost never overpay. Max Scherzer is 37 years old. His arm failed him in the playoffs. He's still Max Scherzer. He was unbelievable last year. I still believe he should have won the Cy Young. Um, I mean, Corbin Burns was sensational, but I would have given it to Scherzer. I thought Scherzer was a different was on a different level. But I mean, at 37, he had the lowest ERA of his career at 2.46. And led Major League Baseball with a .86 whip. That's walks and hits per innings pitched. And only six hits allowed per nine innings. So Scherzer was unbelievable. Um, Scherzer was amazing. Um, the Dodgers, as I said, made the biggest splash prior to the July 30th trade deadline last season. When they acquired Scherzer and Trey Turner from the Washington Nationals in exchange for Josiah Gray, Kybert Ruiz, Donovan Casey, and Gerardo Carrillo. 
Both Scherzer and Turner were instrumental in the Dodgers' postseason push. The three-time Cy Young winner went 7-0 with a 1.98 ERA and 89 strikeouts in over 68 innings over 11 starts. I was lucky enough to go to three of those starts, including his Dodger debut against the Houston Astros when he struck out over 10 batters and had his first career curtain call. I was actually photographed in that curtain call, so... Uh, now that Scherzer has left the Dodgers, it is it makes it that much sweeter to have been a part of that. Coming off a 106-win season, it is a huge offseason for the Dodgers. The first time during their recent run of success, the front office has a number of major roster decisions to make. Scherzer, Corey Seager, Clayton Kershaw, Chris Taylor, and Kenley Jansen are among their notable players eligible for free agency. So Scherzer is gone. Kershaw and Taylor are still questionable. More on Seager later. Uh, despite being at an age when most pitchers are trying to hang on, Scherzer remains one of the most dominant players in baseball. The eight-time All-Star ranked fifth among pitchers in Fangraphs wins above replacement with 5.4. Scherzer seemed like he would be a priority for the franchise. Instead, he will be another ace for the Mets alongside Jacob deGrom in 2022. That is insane. Uh, the Mets have been making a splash. Uh, when Steve Cohen purchased the Mets last year, he said at his introductory press conference, it would be, quote, disappointing if they didn't win a World Series within three to five years. After New York went 77 and 85 in 2021, Cohen and the front office are taking steps to get the team to the playoffs. They're making huge moves. The Mets have reportedly added Scherzer, Starling Marte, Eduardo Escobar, and Mark Canna. They previously locked up shortstop Francisco Lindor to a contract worth $341 million over 10 years in March. So the Mets are going all in, much like the Texas Rangers. More on them later. We got more New York sports to talk about. What a fall from grace it has been for Kemba Walker. It's truly sad to see. Uh, the one, the one, the one superstar is now being pushed away. New York Knicks head coach Tom Thibodeau said he plans to remove Kemba Walker from the rotation for the time being. Alec Burks will serve as the team's starting point guard. "Quote: It would be tough to play three small guards together," Thibodeau told reporters Monday. Walker signed a two-year contract worth $18 million with the Knicks during the offseason after being bought out by the Oklahoma City Thunder. The move was seen as a homecoming for the Bronx-born guard, but Walker has struggled to find his place. He's averaging only 12 points and 3 assists in 18 starts, but has played no more than 23 minutes over the last six games. Thibodeau has expressed his frustration with his starting unit's lack of cohesion at several points in the team's 11-9 start thus far. Walker averaged only 9 points, 3 assists, while shooting 37% from the floor. His previous five games, the Knicks have been outscored by 122 points in Walker's 441 minutes this season. Each of their three other primary guards have a positive plus minus. Obviously, he doesn't. Burke started in Walker's stead instead of Walker in Saturday's win over the Atlanta Hawks, putting up 23 points and seven rebounds. Burks and Derek Rose figure to split a majority of the point guard minutes with Emmanuel quickly also seeing an uptick in responsibility. It's unclear what's going to happen to Kemba Walker, who is barely two years removed from signing a four-year contract worth $141 million with the Boston Celtics. At the time, he was seen as an all-star replacement for the, de- for the departing Kyrie Irving, arguably an upgrade in the eyes of some, but what a fall from grace it has been for Walker. At least he's in the NBA, though. Kyrie is not playing right now, so... However, though, um, on, on some real shit, chronic knee injuries have, ne- have left Walker a shell of himself at 31 years old with um, no real avenue for turning things around. It's, it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. Uh, now switching gears to, let's see, what do we got on time? Okay, switching gears to more football. I mean, I said that top prospects and players would be leaving OU and they already have quarterback Spencer Rattler announced Monday that he will enter the transfer portal. The news comes after head coach Lincoln Riley left Oklahoma to take the same job at USC on Sunday. 
Rattler entered 2021 as a Heisman Trophy contender, but struggled with consistency, finishing the year with 1,483 passing yards and 11 touchdowns with five interceptions in nine appearances. He was benched in favor of true freshman Caleb Williams in October. The quarterback was much better in his first season as a starter, leading the Big 12 with 3,031 passing yards, 28 passing touchdowns, and a 172.6 passer efficiency rating. With a 70.1 career completion percentage, Rattler has displayed plenty of upside at the collegiate level. The Arizona native entered Oklahoma as a five-star recruit, and it was the number one pro-style quarterback prospect in the 2019 class in 24-7 Sports' composite rankings. There will likely be a heavy bidding war for him, especially since he has up to three years of eligibility remaining. The latest news also creates further problems, obviously, for Oklahoma as they try to try to move past Lincoln Riley's departure. Uh, though Rattler's potential transfer could have been expected after he lost his starting job, the Sooners have also lost multiple top, commi- top commitments in the past two days, per ESPN, so it's, it's just a tough break for uh, Oklahoma all around, but um, it is what it is, obviously, I'm not surprised Rattler is leaving, but yeah, now switching gears back to the NFL, just tough break for the Panthers, Carolina Panthers running back Christian McCaffrey will miss the remainder of the season after being placed on injured reserve with an ankle injury, it is McCaffrey's second stint on the injured reserve, making him ineligible to return to the Panthers. The 25-year-old was reportedly seen wearing a walking boot after suffering a left ankle injury in Sunday's um, loss to the Miami Dolphins. He finished the game with 10 carries for 35 yards as he didn't receive a touch in the second half. McCaffrey is undoubtedly one of the best running backs in the NFL, but he has struggled to stay on the field for sure. He missed 18 games over the past two seasons, including five this year with a hamstring issue. A high ankle sprain and shoulder and thigh injuries limited him to only three games in 2020. Through seven games this season, the Stanford product rushed for 442 yards and one touchdown. He also caught 37 passes for 343 yards and a touchdown. Carolina is 1-4 with him not playing, so obviously he's huge for them. He was the eighth overall pick in the 2017 NFL Draft. He was named a second-team All-Pro in 2018 and a first-team All-Pro the following year. He was also named to, the fir- to his first Pro Bowl in 2019 after becoming the third player in league history to have 1,000 y- yards rushing and receiving in the same season. The Panthers are used to absences at this point. Rookie running back uh, Chubba Hubbard will again step into starting role. He has 427 rushing yards and three touchdowns this season. After starting the season 3-0, the Panthers have fallen to 5-7. and So not much to talk about there, but hopefully Christian McCaffrey will recover. Transitioning to more baseball. Um, more, more baseball. <laughs> uh, Robbie Ray is cashing in on a career year. <laughs> Very much so. Agreeing to a five-year contract worth $115 million with the Seattle Mariners. This is a very Seattle Mariners-like contract. It's not a contract the Dodgers would give Robbie Ray or any pitcher, really. But, yeah, he won the American League Cy Young. But I, I, I just don't know. I don't, I don't see how you give Robbie Ray $115 million over five years. I just don't. The 30-year-old experienced his worst season in 2020 between that and the financial effects of the COVID-19 pandemic across the MLB. He had to settle for a one-year $8 million deal with the Blue Jays for 2021. That obviously proved to be a massive bargain for them, you know, because hindsight is 2020. In 32 appearances, the Southpaw went 13-7 with a 2.84 ERA and 3.69 FIP. He averaged 11.5 strikeouts per nine innings and a personal best 2.4 walks per nine innings. His 248 strikeouts were the most in baseball, one ahead of Zach Wheeler of the Philadelphia Phillies in the National League. Ray was a near-unanimous Cy Young Award winner for the American League, beating out Garrett Cole of the Yankees. 
The Athletic wrote, uh, Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic wrote about how Ray turned the, quote, best shape of his life spring training trope into a reality by changing his offseason workout regimen. He also went back to a delivery he used earlier in his career in an effort to find more uniformity with his mechanics. Quote, discussing that, Robbie Ray said, quote, that's something that I've been searching for my whole career is that consistency and the mechanical changes that I've made. He said to McGrath, I think it's allowed me to have certain cues, physical cues to make sure that I hit them every time. And they're really simple. Ray's four-seam fastball velocity at 94.59 was his highest since 2016 per Brooks Baseball. According to Baseball Savant, he had a 24% whiff rate and a 21% put-away percentage on his fastball. Those numbers were up from 19.4 and 17.5% respectively in 2020. He also um, he also altered his approach to the limit use to limit the usage of his curveball. He threw that pitch almost 17% of the time in 2020 and opposing hitters had an expected batting average of 353 and an expected slugging percentage of 579 per baseball savant. His curveball percentage fell to 6% down astronomically this this past season in 2021 and it became more effective. Hitters had only a 278 expected batting average and a 399 expected slugging. In September, Bleacher Report's Joel Reuter ranked Ray as the number eight free agent and the second best pitcher on the market behind Max Scherzer, who we obviously went no went to the Mets. And I don't know if I agree with that. I would take, I would personally take Kevin Gosman over Robbie Ray, but that's just me. Um, while the 2017 All Star was terrible in 2020, absolutely god awful. He had a 6.62 ERA and 6.5 FIP. He had a 3.96 ERA and 3.92 FIP in five years with the Arizona Diamondbacks from 2015 through 2019. He also had a total of 955 strikeouts in 762 innings. So even if Ray can't repeat the production that he that earned him his first Cy Young, he should continue to be a solid contributor near the top of the rotation. I'm not sure if he would be the ace with Jose Barrios. Excuse me, not with Jose Barrios. Uh, <laughs> he's going to the... Robbie Ray is going to the Seattle Mariners, guys. So Jose Barrios arguably replaced him on the Blue Jays. But again, this is a very Mariners-like signing. So... Uh, but you know, it is, it is what it is for the Mariners. When you're, when you're the Seattle Mariners, you give uh, Robbie Ray 115 million. There's no doubt about that. Now let's switch gears to college football. What a story. What a story this was. Um, Brian Kelly is expected to be hired by LSU after a 12 year run at Notre Dame, according to Pete Thamel of Yahoo Sports. The Athletics' Matt Fortuna reported LSU offered a offered Kelly a 10-year deal that will be worth more than $100 million with incentives. Per Dennis Dodd of CBS Sports, Kelly's annual salary will be in the range of $15 million. Kelly informed Notre Dame players that he would be leaving the school in a message on Monday night. <laughs> Pete Sampson tweeted, quote, Just now Brian Kelly messaged Notre Dame's roster and team works that, quote, I will be leaving Notre Dame. The plan is for Kelly to meet with the team tomorrow at 7 a.m., <laughs> Um, if I was on the team, I would probably not wake up for that. Kelly has been viewed as one of the top coaches coaches in college football for the better part of two decades. After gradually improving Central Michigan during his first three years as a head coach, he truly made a name for himself during his time at Cincinnati. Kelly led the Bearcats to a double to double digit wins in each of his three full seasons as head coach, going thirty four and six at the school. He led the school to a twelve and zero regular season in two thousand nine prior to taking the Notre Dame job. During his time in South Bend, Kelly helped the Fighting Irish return to prominence. If uh, this is indeed the end of his tenure there, he leaves the school's he leaves as the school's winningest coach ever, having piled up 113 wins over 12 seasons. Under Kelly, Notre Dame reached the BCS national cha- national championship game for the 2012 season and also reached the college football playoff twice in 2018 and 2020. The Fighting Irish are currently at 11 and one and sixth in the college football playoff rankings. So they're one of the best teams in the country. There's no doubt no doubt about it. 
After five consecutive seasons with double-digit wins at Notre Dame, Kelly would be taking over an LSU program that needs rebuilding. LSU Athletic Director Scott Woodward announced in October that former head coach Ed Orgeron would not return after this season, his sixth year with the program. The Tigers finished the season with a 6-6 six and six record. They also struggled at 5-5 five and five last season. While the past two years fell short of expectations, Orgeron did lead the Tigers to a 2019 National Championship behind Heisman Trophy winner Joe Burrow, but perhaps that was more on Burrow than it was on Orgeron. The 15-0 squad had one of the best off offenses in history, averaging an NCAA best 48.4 points per game that season. That is unbelievable. The title led to an extension, but um, yeah, it shows, it, it, it shows though, uh, the enormous pressure on the next coach to deliver considering the success of, the, of his predecessors at LSU. LSU has won national titles under coach. LSU has won national titles under each of the last three coaches with... Uh, that they've had with Orgeron in 2019, Lay Miles in 2007, and Nick Saban in 2003, all finding glory. So a huge, a huge deal for LSU. Now switching gears to baseball. If Max Scherzer was not the biggest signing thus far, then it was this. And honestly, I feel like it might have, might have been this. To be honest, Corey Seager is reportedly on the move. As a Dodger fan, this hurts my soul, but I'm not surprised. The star shortstop agreed to a 10-year deal worth. $325 million with the Texas Rangers, according to Jeff Passan of ESPN. That is why I said the Texas Rangers earlier. That is that is why I said earlier in the show that the, that the Texas Rangers have over $500 million committed to uh, free agents this offseason. 325 to Seager, almost $200 million to Marcus Simeon. What, I mean, this is insane. Uh, and, and they've also signed John Gray and Cole Calhoun that... I mean, in the past 24 hours, as Jeff Passan, said, Jeff Passan said, the Texas Rangers have committed half a billion dollars to sign Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon. Just like, just like that, they've got the best middle infield in baseball as they start their rebuild. That is insane. Seager is only 27 years old. He's, he had another excellent year for the Los Angeles Dodgers in 2021, hitting 306 with 16 home runs, 57 RBIs, 54 runs scored, and a 915 OPS in 95 games. A broken fifth metacarpal in his right hand cost him a big chunk of the season, but he was as productive as ever when he was healthy. Unlike last year, when his torrid bat in the postseason, 328 with 8 home runs, 20 RBIs, 20 runs scored, and a 1.171 OPS, helped lead the Dodgers to a title. He hit just 188 for LA in this, in this year's playoffs which was a factor in, in his team's loss to the Atlanta Braves in the NLCS. Uh, once Seager has been able to avoid injury, though, he's emerged as one of the best shortstop, shortstops in baseball. Uh, the Dodgers were in the market to retain him, but their current estimated payroll of 100, $193 million is already the second highest mark in baseball per spot track. And Seager was not the team's only high-profile free agent, as obviously Chris Taylor, K Kenley Jansen, and Clayton Kershaw are all still on the market. So a And so Clayton Kershaw could reunite with Corey Seager in Texas. I would hate for that to happen, uh, but it is possible. So now with that said, I'm going to give my uh, at-the-spread picks uh, for week 13 of the season, of the NFL season. Let me just let me just pull that up real quick. Let me look that up. Uh, how I don't even know how we're doing on time because I've had to do a couple new recordings that I'm going to add to the original one. So, but I'm pretty sure we're uh, approaching... 40 minutes if not more i don't even know i don't think we're gonna hit an hour on this one but let's look at week 13 i'm gonna give my picks for for the spread let's look at it let's look at it all right we got first let's look at let me mute that let's look at the thursday night game we got the seven and four 
Dallas Cowboys at the 5-6 New Orleans Saints. The Cowboys are minus 5 on the road, and I like them. Despite the fact that they're on the road in New Orleans, it's not an easy environment. I'm going to go with the Cowboys, although it is of note. It is of note that... Um, one second. It is of note that Mike McCarthy will not be coaching the Cowboys for this game because of COVID-19. That news has brought the Cowboys spread down to five and a half after they had jumped to, to jumped at minus six coming out of Sunday. Dallas is a perfect six and zero at the spread in their last six games against the NFC, while the Saints are two and five at the spread in their last seven against the conference. So things are looking good for the Cowboys. Here's an interesting one: the four and seven New York Giants at the five and seven Miami Dolphins. Two very similar teams. Dolphins are at home, so they're the slight favorites at minus two and a half. I would low key look at Giants plus two and a half. I'm let me. Look at the details, though. This has since jumped to a full field goal advantage for the Dolphins, who have sneakily won four in a row, including a 33-10 win over the Panthers in Week 12, where Tua Tagovailoa completed 87% of his passes. Meanwhile, the Giants were able to grind out a win over the Eagles at home, but they could be in some trouble as they head down to Hard Rock Stadium, despite being 4-1 at the spread in their last five. This season, the Giants are 1-4 straight up on the road for MetLife Stadium. That trends positively for the Dolphins, who are 9-1 at the spread in their last 10 home games against a team with a losing record. That's a pretty specific stat. But I'll go with the Dolphins. I think they get the win. I think they're playing a little bit better than the Giants are, despite both teams winning of late. Next up, this one's easy for me. The 6-6 six six Indianapolis Colts at the 2-9 and nine Houston Texans. It's Colts minus 7. This has since jumped to Colts 7.5 coming out of Sunday's Coming out of Sunday, Indy is off the heels of a last-second loss of the, to a Super Bowl contender in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, where Leonard Fournette found the end zone four times that day. As for Houston, they couldn't hang on to a field goal lead at halftime over the Jets as New York rallied with a 10-0 run over the final two quarters to hand the Texans their ninth loss of the year. While both of these teams were on the losing end of the things in Week 12, the Colts are the far superior team, and the odds makers are treating them as such. They're 4-0 at the spread in their last four games on the road, and they're 5-1 at the spread in their last six as a road favorite. So Colts minus 7 um, is easy. Let me just uh, make a note of that. Because I'm, I'm, I'm going to review all my picks on the show. Colts minus 7.5. Next up, this one is easy as well. Actually, I, I don't know. The 5-6 and six Minnesota Vikings at the 0-10-1 Detroit Lions. The Vikings are at minus 6.5. This has come down to Vikings minus 7 following Minnesota's loss of the 49ers on Sunday. Not only were the Vikings on the losing end of their matchup, but they saw running back Dalvin Cook suffer a shoulder injury that will likely keep him out for this matchup and possibly longer. While Minnesota still has plenty of weapons to throw at the winless Lions, it was not surprising to see things tick down in the aftermath of Cook's injury. This number does look promising for Detroit, however, as the Vikings are 1-8 at the spread in their last nine games as a favorite and 0-6 against teams with a losing record. Meanwhile, the Lions are 4-1 at the spread in their last five games overall. They did cover against the Bears despite losing on Thanksgiving Day. And I'm going to go with the Lions. I mean, minus 7, I'd go with them. No Dalvin Cook. The Lions are at home. I don't think the Lions win this game. Don't get me wrong. But I like Lions plus 7.5 on this one. Next up, the 5-7 and seven Philadelphia Eagles at the 3-8 and eight New York Jets. Interesting. The Eagles are at minus 6. That's a little much for a team that just lost to the Giants. The Eagles have even more. They've since been bumped up to a 7-point favor over the Jets this week. Philly, as I said, is coming off a loss last week to the Giants at MetLife Stadium in a game that saw Jalen Hurd struggle tremendously. He threw three interceptions and completed only 45% of his passes. Despite those struggles, the Ozmakers are not impressed with the Jets, even if they were able to come away with a win in Week 12. Rookie Zach Wilson is still battling some inefficiency, so this could prove to be a low-scoring affair if both quarterbacks continue to continue to struggle. 
The Jets are one and six at the spread against teams with a losing record, while the Eagles are four and nine at the spread in their last thirteen run games. If I had to go with one, I would go with the Eagles at minus uh, minus seven. Even though the Jets are at home, I'll go with the Eagles. Here's a good one: the nine and two Arizona Cardinals at the four and seven Chicago Bears. The Bears are four and seven, but they're still a solid team. The Cardinals could be getting Kyler Murray back for this game following a Week Twelve bye. And we'll be facing a Bears team that narrowly defeated the Lions on Thanksgiving Day. Of course, that was without rookie quarterback Justin Fields, who is battling rib injuries. Both quarterbacks will be worth monitoring as the week progresses, but Arizona will be considered the road favorite regardless. It appears the Cardinals were four and seven at the excuse me four and one at the spread versus teams with a losing record, while the Bears are zero and four in their last four games as a home underdog. I'll go with the Cardinals uh, minus seven. That's pretty easy in my opinion. Here's a great one. The 6-5 Los Angeles Chargers at the 7-4 Cincinnati Bengals. Bengals minus 2. This spread has since bumped up to a full field goal at minus 3. The Bengals look like they found their mojo over the last few weeks with the latest win being a smackdown over the Pittsburgh Steelers. Meanwhile, the Chargers are still in the thick of the AFC West race but just suffered a big loss to the Broncos in Denver where Justin Herbert threw two interceptions and one of which was a pick 6. The Chargers have not been the safest bet as of late as they come into this matchup 1-5 and five with the spread in their last 6. However, the Bengals also have not been a lock in the aftermath of a win Owning a three and eight at the spread record following their last eleven straight straight up eleven straight up victories, I'd go with the Bengals though. Um, I mean they just destroyed the Steelers and the Chargers lost to the Broncos, so I'm gonna go with the Bengals minus two on this one. Next up, the eight and three Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the five and six Atlanta Falcons. It feels like the Falcons always play Tom Brady. The Buccaneers minus nine and a half. Oof, that's a little steep. Tampa Bay is now considered a ten point favorite in this matchup against against Atlanta. The Bucs are coming off a last-second win over the Colts, as I said previously. Meanwhile, the Falcons got some elite production from their backfield in the win over the Jacksonville Jaguars, as Corderell Patterson totaled 135 yards from scrimmage and two touchdowns. This, this game is happening in Atlanta. That does make the Falcons an, an interesting pick, as the Bucs are 1-5 at the spread in their last six road games. You know what? Not, at plus 10, I would go with Atlanta. I think the Buccaneers win, but I think they win by like 7. I don't think they win that big this but i am iffy on this pick but if i if my life was on the line i'd go with falcons plus 10 uh let's see what else where are we at next up the two and nine lost two and nine jacksonville jaguars at the seven and four los angeles rams the rams have moved up to a 13 and a half point favorite which is the biggest spread of the upcoming split the rams are coming off a loss but he was against the packers on the road where matthew stafford turned the ball over twice including a pick six in the second half the rams were able to get odell beckham jr involved as he caught I already talked about this previously, but they should have a much easier time against the Jacksonville Jaguars who suffered a loss to the Falcons at home. Taking the massive amount of points could prove to be the wise move for this matchup as the Rams are 0-5 at the spread in their last five games as the favorite. Meanwhile, the Jags are 4-0 at the spread in their last four road games against teams with a winning record. Uh, but despite that, despite the stats, I'd go with the Rams minus 13.5. I think they respond with a huge statement win over the Jaguars and just blow them out of the water. Next up, the four and six Washington four, five and six Washington football team at the six and five Las Vegas Raiders. This one's tough. Raiders minus the Raiders have jumped to a two and a half point favorite, but any more significant movement likely won't occur until Tuesday. The Raiders have not been particularly strong at home, going one and four at the spread in their last five games at Allegiant Stadium. They are also one and five at the spread against teams with a losing record, so Washington could prove to be the play here. But they will not be my play. I'm going to go with Raiders minus two and a half. I think they're just better than Washington. It's that simple. Next up, the the um, nine and three Baltimore Ravens, or no eight and three Baltimore Ravens at the five five and one Pittsburgh Steelers. Ravens minus three. 
The Steelers are now getting the hook at this as this line has moved down to Ravens to minus three and a half. Despite the win on Sunday night, Lamar Jackson did not look good at all as he threw four interceptions. That said, Ben Roethlisberger arguably looked even worse as the Steelers got blown out by the Bengals last week. He threw two picks and a touchdown while completing only 58% of his throws. In their last seven home games, the Steelers are 1-6 at the spread. That does not sound too promising as they await to host the Ravens team that is 9-2 at the spread against the AFC North in their last 11 matchups. I think Baltimore minus 3.5 is a lock, and I'm going to go with them. Next up, an NFC West matchup between the 6-5 San Francisco 49ers at the 3-8 Seattle Seahawks. Uh, and it's probably even more, it's Niners minus one. It's probably even more uh, favoring the Niners as the Seahawks lost to Washington today. Uh, Russell Wilson is, doesn't look healthy, doesn't look good. The Niners have been doing well lately. The Niners have been a favorable bet over the last month as they're four and one at the spread over their last five. Um, as a road favorite, they're six and two at the spread in their last eight. So I think Niners minus whatever. I mean, I don't think it'll be more than like minus five, but uh, I'd go with the Niners over the Seahawks. Next up, the 6-5 Denver Broncos at the 7-4 Kansas City Chiefs. The Chiefs are minus 9.5. Kansas City and Denver will wrap up Sunday's action at Arrowhead Stadium in what is a pivotal AFC West head-to-head. The Chiefs are coming off a Week 12 bye while the Broncos were able to handle the Chargers, largely thanks to two interceptions by rookie corner Patrick Certain. While the Chiefs are starting to turn the corner, they haven't been a safe bet at home. Over their last 12 games at home, they're 2-10 at the spread. That is awful. Meanwhile, Denver is 4-1 at the spread in their last five road games against teams with a winning record. This time I am going to go with the numbers. I think Chiefs minus nine and a half is too much for a team that has not looked like the Chiefs that we know and love the dominant Chiefs or know and hate, depending on who you are. The Broncos, meanwhile, they're a weird team, but they are six and five. They are above 500. They just beat the Chargers. I don't think they're going to beat the Chiefs, but I do think they'll cover plus nine and a half. Uh, I'm going to go with the Broncos. And lastly, what a game this is for Monday night. The eight and four New England Patriots at the seven and four Buffalo Bills. The Bills are a slight favorite at minus three. Week 13 concludes with a great game on Monday night as the Patriots and Bills will look to gain an edge ed, gain an edge in the AFC East. The Patriots are riding, are riding a six-game winning streak into this matchup while the Bills are playing on extended rest after dropping 31 points against the Saints on Thanksgiving. In their last seven home games, Buffalo is 7-3-1 and one at the spread while the Patriots are 4-1 and one at the spread in their last five road games. Buffalo is minus three. I like that. I'm going to go with them. Let's see how accurate I am. Ladies and gentlemen, what an episode this has been. A very long one. Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, if you enjoy the show, follow me on Spotify. Follow the show, Sean Sportstop, Sean Hardo on Instagram. Thank you guys so much for listening. I love you guys. Number 359 right now. Number 360 soon. I'm out.